0: are listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Last week, we began to talk about Uh, The biblical truth of adoption and being adopted into the family of God and we're going to continue to do that today and it's fitting because we need to remember that our citizenship is not here on earth as the people of God. Uh, The earth may give way, the mountains may go into the sea, but uh, this is not our home, at least in its current state, and it will all be transformed one day. It will be burned up and recreated to a place fit for the people of God. And so just as a reminder, uh, as we enter into this political season, uh, that our hope is in God and that we're in his family. I'm going to read this passage and then seek God's guidance. It says this, Ephesians chapter 1, 5, and 6, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can address you as such, as Father. And I pray that we would get this today, that we would understand what it means to be sons and daughters of God Most High, adopted into his family Don't let us leave without knowing this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As followers of Jesus, we have been adopted into the family of God. And we mentioned uh, that there are several benefits to being adopted into the family of God. And there's three main ones that we talked about last week. We talked about the fact that uh, as children in the family of God, we have God's provision for us. That God provides for our physical and more importantly for our spiritual needs. We also talked about the fact that there is protection in the family of God as well. That God is protecting us uh, physically, and that nothing can come near us unless God actually allows that. And if He does allow it to come near us, it is ultimately for His glory and for our good, even though at the moment it may not seem pleasant at all. We actually see several examples of this in the Bible, where God is uh, God allows Satan to come at his people and to tempt them uh, in in major ways. In the Old Testament you have the classic example of Job Right, Job. Uh, one day, the the um, the angels are presenting themselves before God, and Satan, a fallen angel, comes before God, and uh, God says, "Have you considered my servant Job?" And and Satan is basically says, "Yeah, he he serves you, and he's faithful because you've given him everything. Like you've put a hedge of protection about him. You start to take away some of this stuff. You start to take away his family, his possessions, his health." And I guarantee you, he'll curse you to your face. And so God gives, grants Satan permission to really wreak havoc in Job's life by taking uh, his possessions, by, uh, by taking his children even as well, and by inflicting him with, with sores from the top of his head uh, to the soles of his feet. Satan could only do that if God gave him permission. When we go into the New Testament, we see the example of Peter. Peter Jesus said this near, uh, right before he's about to be crucified, he said this, Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. Satan has requested permission, and the implication is that he was granted permission to tempt you in a very, very major way. And if you know the story, you know that Peter actually ended up denying that he knew Jesus three times. Cursing and swearing that he did not know Jesus. And he could not have tempted, Satan could not have tempted Peter unless God had granted him permission. And I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for that story in the Bible because I mess up in major, major ways. And if Peter could mess up in that major way and be restored, then I know that I can be restored as well. But once again, God is the one who is in ultimate control, not allowing his children to be touched unless he has granted permission. And so God does protect us physically in that nothing can touch us unless he allows it. But God is more concerned about our spiritual condition. Uh, He has purchased us and now he is guarding our souls. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1st Peter chapter 1. Um, what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks is I've been putting out these little um, pieces of paper which got the scripture references that we will be looking at today. They're on the table um, right where the camera is too if you want to grab one and follow along. But 1st Peter chapter 1 uh, verses 3 through 5. Peter here begins uh, his letter as Paul does, uh, Ephesians, in praise to God for who he is and what he's done. He says this, blessed To be revealed in the last time. This scripture reference says that we are guarded, that we are protected by God. And that's a beautiful thing. God is protecting our souls for the day of redemption. Also, we mentioned last week that a benefit of being in the family of God is that we have the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. And we mentioned that discipline is never a pleasant thing. It's never something that we're inviting into our lives, but it's always good for us. And it keeps us on the right path, Um, the path that brings lasting joy into our lives. The passing pleasures of this world, uh, the materialism, the gossip, the sexual immorality, the greed and such— They can and they do bring temporary joy and satisfaction. There's no question that they do, or people would not engage in them at all. They do bring that temporary joy and satisfaction, but in the end, they bring pain, they bring emptiness, and they ultimately bring death, separation from God. And God, as our Father, loves us too much to allow his children to continue down those roads unchecked. And so he disciplines us for our own good. A final uh, benefit that we mentioned last week, just in passing, was that we receive an inheritance, and we said we're going to save that for when we get to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Today, what I want to do with our time is I want to focus on the greatest benefit of being in the family of God, and that is relationship. Relationship and a sense of belonging. The provision and the protection of God are great and they're necessary. The inheritance is icing on the cake, if you will. But the thing that we all want, the thing that we need, more than anything, is relationship. God is a relational being. God exists in Community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are created in His image, and as such, we are created to be relational beings. If you were to look all the way back into the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, you would see, Genesis 1 and 2, you would see that God made one amazing thing after another. And after everything He made, He declared, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. But the very first thing that God decre- uh, declared that was not good, is He said, it is not good For the man to be alone, man needs to be in relationship. And so God created another human being to be with the man because this is what we were created for. We were created for relationships. We need relationships, relationships are essential to what it means to be human. We talked about this before. One of the worst punishments that a government can inflict on someone else is what is known as solitary confinement, where you are cut off from every other relationship in the world. And people go insane when that happens because we were created for relationships. And the ultimate relationship that we were created for was a relationship with God. And this is why adoption is so beautiful. Think about a physical adoption. A child may be passed from one foster care home to another. And each time they are passed from, uh, they exit one. The uh, The implied message is this, you are not wanted here. You are not wanted here. And they hear that over and over again. And it's usually because a child, especially when they start to get in their older ages, like maybe even seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, into their teen years, they come with what's known as so much baggage, so much rejection over, over the years. Many of them have been physically or sexually abused. And the child, and usually it manifests itself in rebellion, and the child wants to love and wants to be loved. They just don't know how to do it. They just don't know how to do it. And so spiritually speaking, we all come into the family of God with a whole mess of baggage, right? A whole mess of baggage and a rebellious spirit that's longing to be loved. And the only one who can love us perfectly and show us how to love is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And adoption is us being welcomed into the family of God with no strings attached. No strings attached. God doesn't come into this relationship with us naively, right? God doesn't get caught off guard by any of our sins. God isn't like, whoa, I didn't know Jason was going to do that. If I did, I would have never welcomed him into my family. He is not caught off guard by our behavior. He is fully aware of what he is getting into with us. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it shows us that God does not get caught off guard. It says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What I want you to notice is this, that it does not say that God demonstrates his love towards us and that once we got our acts together and it was clear that we would sin no more, that's when Christ died for us. It wasn't like Christ is like, hey, I'm not going to waste my life if they're going to continue sinning. No, God was not waiting for us to get our acts together and to affirm that we would never sin again. It was while we were still sinners, while we were still messed up, that's when Christ gave his life for us. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The point is this, that our father knows that we're going to mess up over and over again, but he chose us to be in his family anyway. He can handle us and our sin. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that he is stuck with us. And we are stuck with him. And that's how he wants it. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 17. Because I want to further explore uh, the implications of this relationship that we have with God. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 17. In any of these passages that we read, there's so much truth in there that we can't explore at all. Uh, So I'm going to read and just make a few comments. It says this. with him, When you and I put our faith in Jesus, then according to Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. And for the very first time in our lives, we are actually at peace with God. God is no longer angry with us. And what happens at that moment, if you were to read the rest of, of Romans, is you would see that we are united to Christ and that his Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in us. His Spirit comes to live in us. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, then you have received the Spirit of adoption by which you can cry out, Abba, Father. Father. The term Abba is a term of intimacy, uh, some even translate it as Daddy. It's us crying out. It's the cry of a, of a small child who more than anything wants the embrace of his father. Just crying out. I don't know if you've ever seen them, I'm sure you have, but I love the, the YouTube videos where um, a guy who's in the military has been deployed overseas for several months um, and his kids have not seen him, uh, and then he comes home and he surprises them. Maybe he shows up at school unexpectedly or, or something like that, and these things tear me up every time because you can see the kid as soon as he sees his dad or as soon as she sees her dad. They just lose it, right? The tears are flowing, right? They almost, you know, they become weak, and they just throw themselves. They run. They don't care about any of the rules in the classroom, right? Stay in your seat. Dad's home, and they run, at him. And he just hugs them. At that moment, they're not thinking, hey, what'd you bring me back from overseas, right? They're not thinking, hey, does this mean we get to go out to eat later? Hey, can we do this or that? No. The only thing they're thinking is, is that dad is home and all is right with the world because I've desperately, desperately missed him. This can happen on a daily. I, th- I think about like a, a maybe as a father goes off to work all day um, and uh, his children are playing and then when they hear the door open and they scream out, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! And they run. And at that point, what do they want? They want to be with their father. They want him to embrace them. They want him to sit down and read with them or, or play around with them on the floor or whatever it is. They want the presence of, of dad. They want to spend time with dad. When I was a youth pastor, they drilled into our heads that teenagers spell love, T-I-M-E. They spell love with time, time, spending time with them. There's no doubt that like adults, teenagers and kids can be materialistic, but in the end, relationships trump everything else. They trump everything else. And you see, you can see it like a kid. I would I would guarantee that any kid would rather give up the possessions, all the possessions, in order to have that meaningful relationship with mom or dad. In adoption, this is what God offers us. He offers us a relationship with him. He offers us T-I-M-E with the God of the universe. Mary got this right in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to ask you to turn there. Luke chapter 10. Uh, Verses 40 through 42, Luke chapter 10, 40 through 42, Mary uh, got this right because she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, while her sister Martha was busy serving the Lord, which is not a bad thing, right? But she's so busy serving the Lord, and finally Martha had had enough, and she says to Jesus, she says this, Lord... Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus was basically saying, Martha, I'm only here for a short time. I'm only here for a short time. I, I want to be with you, right? Sit down. Let's talk. Let's get to know each other. There'll be time to serve, right? There'll be time to do the, the, the household chores later on. Just come. I'm here. Sit with me. Talk with me. Get to know me. I know that I struggle with this. There's so many times that the, the, the days seem like there's so much to do and the temptation is to, is to not spend the time that is necessary with the Lord in prayer, to, to not just sit in his presence. I don't have time to do that, right, in silence. I got to be doing stuff. I got to be preparing this or, or talking to this person or, or whatever. I don't have time to just sit and listen. And his message to me is the same. Jason, Jason, you are anxious and worried about so many things. I'm here. most important thing is for you to spend time with me you realize that Jesus did not call you into his family because he needed another servant, right? I need someone to do this. Who can I pick? Okay, you know, you're never gonna see me, but I want you to do this. No, he called you into his presence to be with you. Okay, he called you above all to be with you. Yes, we serve, but we are first with him. Being with Jesus is what brings comfort to us. Being with Jesus is what brings that calm into our life. Being with Jesus is actually what empowers us to do what he's called us to do. When you are with Jesus, I mean really, really with Jesus, you truly know him. When you truly know him, there is a peace that passes all understanding. There is a calm that you have even in the worst of life's storms that says, all is okay. Because Jesus is with me. What are you talking about? You just lost your job. All is okay. Jesus is with me. What, what The diagnosis was cancer. All is well. Jesus is with me. And you can only know this peace when you know Jesus. And you can only know Jesus when you spend time with him in prayer and in the reading and study of his words. There's so much in this life that distracts us from this. There's so much that takes our focus off of what really matters, which is Jesus. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Um, In verses 1 through 6, Paul talks about his amazing accomplishments, and they are impressive. I mean, uh, Paul was the, the the PhD of the apostles. I mean, this guy just did everything. Had so many accomplishments. He was very busy. And here's what he says about it all, beginning in verse 7. Philippians chapter 3 he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then listen to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him. In his death. Paul's greatest desire was to know Christ. If you read his letters, you will see that Paul has a great desire to see people come to know Christ. He even says at one point if I could uh, be accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, I would do it. So he had a great desire to see people come to Christ. But his greatest desire was to know Christ. To know Christ. Not to know about Christ, but to know Christ. Because you know you can know a lot about someone and not know them. You can know all the facts about an actor or an actress or some government official or whatever it is. You can know a whole lot of facts about them, but never know them. You've never been in their presence. You don't know them. You know a lot about them. Paul did not want to know a lot about Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus. And think about Jesus, right? Jesus had three and a half short years of ministry here on this earth. So many people to see, so many places to go, so many things to teach them. And yet if you look at his life, he is often, I mean often, pulling away from it all. Why? Because he needs to spend time with dad, right? He needs to spend time with his heavenly Father. And he's like, I know that you think that you need me right now, and you do, but I need to spend time with my Father. I need to be refreshed. I need to hear his words of affirmation again. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I need to be with him. In fact, Jesus addresses God as Abba in Mark 14, 36. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, because <laughs> I, <clears throat> I love what it says about the apostles here, uh, particularly Peter and John. Peter and John, the situation is that they were preaching Jesus, and then they were arrested by the officials. Um, and they were told, they were put in prison, and then they were released, and they were told, do not preach in this name anymore. Don't do it, or it may be worse for you. They were threatening them. And Peter and John are filled with boldness. And why is that? Well, the answer is in Acts 4, 13. Here's what it says. Now when they saw, that's the religious leader, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that. These guys are uneducated. These guys are common men. These guys are nobodies. How do they have this much boldness? How do they have this much wisdom? Ah, they've been with that Galilean carpenter named Jesus. They had a peace and a calm and a powerful boldness all because they had been with Jesus. They had been with their older brother, who was not ashamed to identify with them and who knew the father better than anyone did and was pleased to reveal the father to them. Hey, let me tell you about my dad. Let me tell you about the father, my father and your father. Let me tell you about him. And that's what Jesus did. He revealed the father to them. It is time with our Heavenly Father that matters most. It mattered most to Jesus. It should matter most to us as well. As I said before, the provision, the protection are great and necessary, but the relationship, the time together is what matters the most. This is seen in my favorite verse in the whole Bible. I'm going to ask you to turn there so you can see it with your own eyes. It's Psalm 1611. Um, If you ever get an email from me, you'll see this reference at the bottom of it. Um, It's something that I reference very often, Psalm 1611. I love this verse because it shows us where our ultimate joy and satisfaction come from. Here's what the psalmist says, speaking to God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy is found not in God's gifts, but in God's presence. Okay? The gifts of God are meant to give us access to the presence of God. What is the greatest gift that God has given us? Well, for God so loved the world that he gifted us his son, right? He gave us the gift of his son so that we could have access to God. One day we will get the streets of gold. We will get a life with no pain or sorrow or disease or anything like that. But the greatest thing that we will get is we will get the presence of God. We will be in his presence forever more. Relationship is what we were created for. When you consider your heavenly father and all that he has done for you, you cannot help but love him. And you know how he feels about you? I want to ask you to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. Zephaniah 3 17. Zephaniah. If you have a, a physical Bible, it's going to be, probably be hard to find because it's one of those um, minor prophets that's stuck in there towards the end of the Old Testament. But Zephaniah three seventeen, and we could go to many passages that talk about how God feels about us. John seventeen, where Jesus is constantly saying the Father loves you and loves me. Um, but Zephaniah three seventeen is such a wonderful affirming truth. Listen to this. Here's what he says the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. If you were to turn on the radio, the vast majority of songs that are sung is from uh, either a a guy who's singing about this girl. He's got to let everyone know how he feels about her. She is the best thing ever, right? Or a girl talking about this guy and how great he is. God is writing love songs about you, rejoicing over you, and singing them out loud for everyone to hear. God rejoices over you and me with loud singing. That's an amazing, amazing truth. Well, the only questions that remain are, do you get this? Do you get this? Do you understand this? And I'm not asking if you get it intellectually. That's not what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, it says it right there, right? It says that we're adopted here and here and here. No, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you get this experientially? Do you know God as your father? Not just know about God, but know God as your father. And here's why I asked. We mentioned this last week at the end of the service, is that the default mode of the human heart is to slip into a performance type of relationship. Okay? We see this in so many of the relationships that we have. They're performance-based. For example, sports, or, or school, or, or career, They're based on performance, right? If you if you do well, then you continue on. If you don't do well, then you get cut from the team You get kicked out of the program You get fired from the job You have to perform in order to continue on and so what happens is that we start to take that relationship and our relationship with God and even many parents can slip into this too, to where they're communicating to their children that you will receive my love as long as you keep your room clean, as long as you keep your grades up, as long as you don't embarrass us in public. You will receive our love. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. And like I said, we carry this over into our relationship with God where we're constantly trying to earn God's favor, earn God's approval. God, have I done enough? Do you love me now? Am I accepted in your presence? Constantly trying to earn his love rather than realizing that we already have it and enjoying it. Remember, nothing that you do catches God off guard. Right? Nothing. It's not like, whoa, I didn't know that that was going to happen. I love the story of, the, of the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus tells her her deepest, darkest secret, that she has had five husbands, and the guy that she's living with right now is not her husband. Jesus told her her worst thing, and he was reminding her that, hey, I initiated this conversation with you, and I came into this knowing exactly who you are. You didn't like. She said, "Well, I've actually had five husbands, and now..." and she's like, "Whoa! I can't talk with you. I didn't realize that." No, he knew exactly. He knows exactly who you are. He knows every sin that you're going to commit for the rest of your life, and he still invited you into his family. In the weekly email, if you get it, I, I gave you a list of uh, of questions to ask yourself to determine whether you are living as an orphan or whether you're living as a son or daughter of God. And I'm not going to read all of them that I gave you. I just want to read a couple because I want you to hear them out loud and I want you to listen and ask, is this true of me? Is this how I'm living? And am I living as an orphan or am I living actually as a, as a son or daughter of God? So I'm just going to read these and let you determine, let you start to do some evaluation. Here's the first set of questions. Do you typically have a feeling God is disappointed with your life? You feel that you are unable to meet his demands for your life. Do you find yourself working under an unending sense of obligation? Or do you feel the Father's sense of pleasure and delight in you? One will determine whether you're living like an orphan or a son or daughter of God. Next set of questions, do you find that you live by certain man-made rules, expecting yourself and others to obey? Do you measure maturity by those rules, or do you measure your obedience by the life of Jesus Christ? Are you able to fully comprehend that the demand has been satisfied already? Next set of questions, do you find that you are insecure about your identity, your appearance, your reputation? Or do you find that you do not strive to find approval with others, but are at peace with both your flaws and your talents and personality? Next set of questions, do you serve out of a personal need for achievement so as to impress God and others or have uh, no motivation at all to serve? Or, do you have a heart that is motivated to serve by a deep gratitude for being unconditionally loved and accepted by the Father? Next set of questions. Do you find you are motivated to have daily Bible study and prayer out of duty to earn God's favor? Or maybe you have no motivation at all to do that. Or, do you find delight in in Bible study, and find pleasure in prayer as you come to know the Father's love in a personal relationship. Next set of questions. Do you believe you must be holy to have God's favor, thus have an increasing sense of shame and guilt when you are not perfect? Or do you desire to be holy, not wanting anything to hinder an intimate relationship with the Father? And then finally, do you have an ongoing sense of self-rejection from comparing yourself to others, or do you have an ongoing sense of seeing yourself from a positive perspective and affirmed because you know you have such value in the Father's eyes? Those are just some questions to start to evaluate yourself. Am I living like an orphan, or am I living... Like a son or daughter of God? Well, if you find yourself living like an orphan, let me just offer some practical advice for you right now. And this is not going to be earth shattering, like, ooh, I've never heard that before, right? You're going to be like, yeah, I've heard that before. So I'm going to ask you, are you actually putting it into practice? Okay? And so here's the best way that I feel that you can get out of that orphan type mentality. And this is to spend more time with God in prayer and in Bible study. And meditation on the Bible. God speaks to you through his word and through prayer, and you speak to God through prayer. God offers you guidance. God offers you correction. God offers you words of affirmation through his word and his spirit speaking to you. So I would encourage you to discipline yourself for the purpose of prayer. If you are currently spending little to no time in prayer, here's the challenge that I'm going to give you, okay? I am going to challenge you to commit to praying in private to Jesus, to the Lord, for one hour a day. One hour. You may be thinking, what am I going to say for an hour, right? I guarantee you that if you start to do this, you will get through that first hour and think, I haven't even scratched the surface of all that I need to pray for regarding myself or the people around me. Spend that time praying. Discipline yourself for the purpose of prayer. I guarantee that if you stick with it, things in your life will begin to change. Your attitude will change. The way that you you feel about God and that God feels about you, uh, how you perceive God feels about you, will change. Anyone who has ever known God well and done amazing things for God has been a man or woman of prayer. It's as simple as that. There are many examples of great men and women uh, who are devoted to prayer. I just want to give you two uh, as we draw our thoughts to a close. The first is the great uh, reformer, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther said this, If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory throughout the day. And so on a normal morning, Martin Luther spent two hours in prayer. And then he said, on particularly busy days— When I have a lot to do, I find that I need to spend at least three hours in prayer. You hear that? It's not like, oh, it's going to be a busy day. I'm going to have to cut my two hours down to one hour. No, it's like, oh, now I need to pray even more. And Martin Luther's motto was this, he that has prayed well has studied well. John Welsh, a wonderful Scotch uh, preacher, thought the day ill-spent, if he did not spend... Eight to ten hours in prayer. Eight to ten hours in prayer. He would have a blanket by his bed so that if he woke up in the middle of the night, he would cover himself in the blanket and pray. And his wife would often find him on the floor praying and weeping and say, what are you doing? To which he would respond to this, oh woman, I have the souls of 3,000 people to answer for, and I don't know where many of them are right now in regard to their relationship with the Lord. I have to be down here praying. I have to be here weeping because I will give an account for the people that God has brought into my life. These and others did amazing things for God because they knew God. They knew the love of the Father because they had spent hours in his presence every day. And you, as a child of God, have that same opportunity. And I would just encourage you, seize it. Use it. You've given a great privilege to enter into the throne room of God with boldness at any time of the day. Use it. If, however, you're here today and you have not given your life to Jesus, then you are not in the family of God. You're not in the family of God and you can never know the love of a heavenly father. You can never know the care and protection that comes from being in relationship with him. The peace and the calm in the midst of the storms, the boldness that he offers. I urge you to give your life to Jesus, to call upon him, to forgive your sins, to make you fit for his family. And Jesus said this, the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. He will never say, oh, not you, not you. No, if you come to Jesus, he will say, welcome, welcome into the family of God. And so come to him today and secure your place at the table of the King, your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you for the message of your word. We thank you for the wonderful biblical truth of adoption. And I do pray, Lord, I know that there are probably people here uh, today or that are listening that uh, don't know you, that are not in your family. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would break down their heart of stone, that heart that, does not, that will not uh, reach out to you and give them life and draw them to yourself. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.